John 13, 1-17 It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. When I was a child, we lived in the northeast of England in a coastal town called Tynemouth. It was the first house that my parents had ever owned, and we loved it. It was an old Edwardian end terrace house. I guess it was built in the early years of the 20th century, and it had three stories, and it still had some of the period features. My brother and I had our bedroom up in the attic room for some years, and there were still some old gas-like fittings that were on the wall. And this room in the attic was where the servants' quarters had been. Now downstairs in what we call the breakfast room, there was an old box on the wall that was over probably 70, 80 years old. And it was like something out of Downton Abbey. A buzzer would sound and a flap would actually swing to show the servants in which room the buzzer had been pressed and where they were required. Now in my parents' bedroom, which had originally been the lounge, there was a big fireplace and next to it was this button for calling the servant to come up and attend to the master or mistress's needs. Now my dad said that he's tried that button many times, but sadly it never worked from him. No servants ever came. He pressed it, no one came, he had to go downstairs and make his own breakfast because I don't know what it's like to have a servant. Now there's a lot of material in the Bible about servants. A lot of people in the Bible either had servants or they were servants or slaves. And Jesus often teaches about servants. And when our lives are over, Christian friends, when we die and go to glory, there is one sentence that we Christians hope to hear more than any other, isn't there? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's joy. Now we're in John's gospel at the moment, and John's gospel can be divided into two big halves with a sort of transition in the middle. In the first 10 chapters, Jesus is revealing who he is through his words and deeds. 
his teaching and his what John calls signs, his miraculous deeds, which point to the reality of who Jesus is. Now, in the second half of John's gospel, which many scholars believe starts here in chapter 13, verse 1, we see Jesus now reveal himself through his suffering, through his cross and through his exaltation. All of this is Jesus' self-disclosure. Jesus is showing us who he really is. Now, last week we thought about how some Greeks had travelled down to Jerusalem for the Passover feast and they heard about Jesus and they came to the disciples with a request. We want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. Well, if we want to see him, here he is. Last week we saw Jesus' splendour, the splendour of the king, yet a, a curious king who comes in humbly riding on a donkey. We saw that Jesus describes himself as the grain of wheat that must die. And we saw that the reason for that was for the glory of the Father. Jesus then laid down the biggest challenge that any of us will ever hear in our lives. He said this, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. Now, if we were in any doubt as to what that actually looks like, in a concrete way, boots on the ground, today we see the very picture of it. This, this section that we've just read is what loving your life, sorry, not loving your life looks like, laying down your life for other people. This is what Jesus means by serving him and following him. And it's captured in this scene where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. What he's saying is you become a servant because he was like master, like servant. I've got three points today. The first one is the hour has come. If you look back at your um, Bible there, chapter 13, verse one, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the father. Now, this chapter begins with a kind of timestamp. It was just before the Passover festival. This is a Thursday night in Jerusalem. It's the night of the Passover meal when Jews ate lamb and unleavened bread and bitter herbs to remember the Exodus. Their forefathers had been slaves in Egypt hundreds of years before, an oppressed people, racially profiled, stigmatised and even subject to brutal genocide. The Hebrews were a despised, trampled people, but God had chosen them specially in order to love them and to display his glory through them. He'd saved them on the night of the very first Passover. The terrible angel of judgment, the angel of death, came through Egypt and every house was to experience the death and loss of a firstborn. And this evil culture which had determined to kill Hebrew babies was now to taste some of its own medicine. The only homes that were spared were those that were protected by the blood of a lamb. The lamb had been killed and its blood carefully drained into a bowl and then that blood had been painted on the lintel and on the frame of the doors, the doorposts. The angel of death passed over those houses. They were spared. Hence it's called Passover because he passed over. And then led by Moses, that slave nation left Egypt in what was called the Exodus and they found a new home in the land of Canaan. Now, on a certain day, every year thereafter, they celebrated the Passover feast to remember. And that's what's going on here. Jesus and his disciples have gathered in an upstairs room for this wonderful, joyful feast 
the Passover meal. But you know, there's a deeper level at work here in this passage, because the very next day, Friday, Jesus is going to give himself, surrender himself to death on a cross. He is going to become the ultimate lamb of God, whose blood will cover us, all those who shelter within him, and spare them from the judgment of God that their sins deserve. Then on the Sunday morning, he's going to conquer death by his resurrection. He will appear as the risen Lord to his followers. It will be his former body, but extraordinarily transformed in preparation for a future world. Now, John says at the end of his gospel that he's written all this down to persuade you that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, spiritual life right now physical life after death in resurrection and eternal life with God in the future. And now that's the most important thing you could ever hear. And in this amazing scene, chapter 13, he shows us where, what the Passover meal is really all about because the Passover meal points to the cross. Back to chapter 13, verse 1. The hour has come. We've been building up to this hour all through John's Gospel. John 2 verse 24. His mother wanted to pressure him into something, but it wasn't the time. He said, my hour has not yet come. John 7 verse 30. The authorities were seeking to arrest him, but they couldn't find him because he wouldn't allow it. His hour had not yet come. John 8 verse 20. They wanted to arrest him again, but his hour hadn't yet come. John 13 verse 1. It's like the clock strikes the hour has finally come and later in the chapter he sends Judas Iscariot out into the night to do what Jesus knows is in his heart to do previously no one could arrest Jesus but now he permits it the hour has come it's the night of the Passover and he is to be the Passover lamb who sets us free and changes our lives now's the time and the amazing thing about John's gospel is it has 21 chapters and nine chapters are devoted to these few days. Over 40% of it describe this period of time of his suffering, his cross, his resurrection. That's because these few days are more important than any other events in the history of the world. Why did Jesus do it? Why did he knowingly go to the cross? Why did he permit that to happen? Embraced the hour that had come? Verse 1 gives us the answer. It says, having loved his own, he who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Another way of translating that is he loved them to the uttermost, to the furthest extent. See, the greatest thing Jesus has said a shepherd could do is lay down his life for his sheep. And he's now going to do that. Now he loved them to the end, to the uttermost. That's his motive. John's giving us a, a peek behind the scenes into Jesus' actual motives for going to the cross. There was nothing that love could do for these guys that he did not now do. Yet at that very moment, evil creeps in. Chapter 13 verse 2 shows that the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. So there's nothing cosy about this scene. It's not sentimental, kind of mushy love. It is love portrayed to us and love betrayed. And this is what love looks like. Verse 2, the king will serve. The king will serve. Now, just picture this, this scene for a moment. There's a bunch of guys that have been walking to the meal. 
they're going through the hot city of Jerusalem. It's busy. It's full of pilgrims. Animals are being led down the street. I don't want to be indelicate, but there are no, there's no sewage system or nothing that we would recognise as very hygienic. It's busy, it's dusty, it's dirty, and they're all wearing sandals. A group of guys now come in to have a meal, and every good host in that culture would arrange for people's feet to be washed. It was pretty much essential if you think about it. And it was a filthy job. And generally, it was only done by the lowest slave on the pecking order. Now, Luke's Gospel, interestingly, records that the disciples actually started bickering at the meal and arguing about which one of them was the greatest. We don't know what started that argument, but it may be that for some reason there was no servant present to wash their feet. And quite frankly, no one wanted to do it. So they start arguing about which one's the greatest. But they're out of the meal and then Jesus just quietly gets up from the meal. He takes off his outer clothing so that he can roll his sleeves up and do this job. He wraps a towel around his waist, presumably so that he can free up his, both his hands for washing. He then pours some water into a basin and he walks towards the nearest man. And these guys would eat reclining, lying down, so the feet would be facing outwards. Now, probably by this point, everyone has stopped talking. And they're thinking, what on earth is he doing? We might say that it was an awkward moment. Because now their revered teacher and Lord begins to wash their feet. New Testament scholar Craig Keener comments that foot washing was the most menial task and that Jesus' act was unrivaled in antiquity. Unrivaled in antiquity. What that means is they've looked at all the literature that we have in the, the Greco-Roman and the ancient world and no leader ever did this. Ever. It was a radical act of service. It was embarrassing. In fact, it was shocking. And you know, they never forgot it. Now, this scene has all the marks of eyewitness testimony, doesn't it? John was a young disciple at the time. And over the years following, before he wrote the gospel, he reflected on this event many, many times. And he realised that what Jesus was doing at that moment was teaching a profound lesson. Here it is. This act of foot washing is a picture of the cross. This act of foot washing is a picture of the cross. Both the cross and the foot washing are supreme displays of his love. Love to the uttermost. Both of them are shocking. The foot washing, though, though shocking to the disciples, is not half as shocking as the idea of a Messiah who would die the shameful death of a cross, the death of a damned slave. Both foot washing and the cross show the Messiah deliberately taking the role of a lowly slave. For the good of others. And both of them are ultimately about cleansing. Jesus came to make us clean and he's the only way to be clean. It is either Jesus Christ or your own filth. So what is going on with this strange conversation with Peter? Have a look at verse 6. It says, he came to Simon Peter and Simon said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Now, Probably everyone is thinking the same thing, but as usual, Peter's the only one who actually says it. It's an objection. Are you, you going to wash my feet? Now, in the conversation that follows, a deadly serious point is being made. Jesus says, you don't realise now what I'm doing, 
but later you will understand. And then Peter comes out and he defies him. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Peter tries to sort of push it away. He says, oh, well, then not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus replies, I, I have made you clean. Though not every one of you, because he's referring to Judas Iscariot. Now, what's the serious point that's being made here? When Peter objects to Jesus washing him, he's really objecting to the cross. He's really saying, I, that's unacceptable. I don't want you to do that. It's the same objection that Peter made in Mark chapter 8, where he heard that Jesus was going to go to the cross and die. He took him to one side and rebuked him and said, you shall never go to the cross. What this shows is that Peter has still not understood what Jesus has to do and why. He's still believing in a glory story, whereas Jesus' road is the road of the cross. And we must realise that. We must realise that we are dirty, morally speaking, and that Jesus came to make us clean. The great Alexander McLaren wrote these words. If you have been down to the depths of your own heart and found out what tremendous diabolic power your own evil nature and sin have upon you, then you will not be content with anything less than the incarnate God who stoops from heaven to bear the burden of your sin and to take it all away. Friends, have you actually realised that? that your sins are so great and so polluting and so foul that the only way to deal with them is for Jesus to come and take them from you. He chose the cross because we're dirty in deep need of cleansing. We're offensive to a God who was unspeakably holy and pure. We're not fit to be in his presence, either in this life or the next. So the king comes all the way down. He stoops down to our level, then he goes lower still. He takes on him the form of a slave and our uncleanness is placed upon him. Our filth is placed upon Jesus and as it were drained away as he dies on the cross and he makes us clean. Because he's a perfect man, he can represent us. And because he's eternally God, he can do things that have eternal and universal effectiveness. He had to be both God and man to do this for us on the cross. And this whole glorious thing is, is a wonderful saving act, but you know there's more. It isn't just that you put your trust in the cross and that's kind of like a decision and you, you place, you, you give some mental assent to some data in the past. We're now called as Christians to an entirely new lifestyle. When you become a Christian, you are called to be a servant a slave even, to the people around you. So my third point is the people of the towel. The people of the towel. The world must see Jesus' followers doing what he did. And he makes this point abundantly clear. If you look at verse 12 to 15, Jesus says, uh, when he's finished washing their feet and put back on his outer clothes, he returned to his place. And he says, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example 
that you should do as I have done for you. An example. In fact, the word there is the word for a pattern. I've set you a pattern. You could use this for a sketch that was going to be copied or even a tracing that, that showed the pattern underneath. I've shown you how to do it, Jesus says. Now copy this. In other words, if you really are one of Jesus' followers, you've become part of the people of the towel. Jesus intended this radical act of foot washing to be a picture of all sorts of menial tasks that we may be called to perform in his service without drawing attention to ourselves. All the things that don't bring you glory, the things that are kind of irritating and boring and menial and just serving other people, those are the things we're being called to. But it also points back, doesn't it, to that bigger challenge of Jesus to lay down our lives, not to love them, but almost to hate them, to serve him by following him in the service of God and the world that he came to save. I've given you a pattern, he said, and he meant it. But friends, why do we find this so hard? Because we do, don't we? The answer is because we're proud. In some church traditions, the senior leaders every year uh, go through a ritual where they actually wash the feet of 12 junior people or even poor or homeless people once a year. Now, I suppose that's OK as far as it goes. But ironically, it does tend to underline the fact that they are the senior leader and it draws attention to them. It could even in some way be a kind of ironic status builder. What Jesus is modelling for us here goes a lot further than that. It's not about bringing a bowl to church and engaging in literal foot washing. Not that you can do that at the moment and remain socially distant. It's about using yourself, everything you have, your resources, your heart, your stuff, your property, to do servant things for other people. That works for the people close to you, your parents, your spouse, your children if you have them, your fellow church members. And you know what? Church members aren't always very nice. Just look at Jesus' 12 friends and bear in mind that he poured his life into them for three whole years. There may be a Peter in your life. Basically good-hearted, but just rash, impulsive, someone who fails to deliver on his promises. He means well, but lets you down when you most need him. Then there's a whole bunch of people, the other 10 of them, who are going to go missing when the bad stuff happens to you, which is what they did with Jesus. You thought they were friends, but at the moment of your greatest need, they were strangely silent. And worst of all, there may even be a Judas in your church family, somebody who sets out to hurt you for their own advantage. It happened to Jesus, and like master, like servant. So we're called to exercise a servant heart towards all those people. It's going beyond washing feet, isn't it? This is what he did for us, though. He loved to the uttermost. You know, we're all tempted to proclaim Jesus as Lord but, and declare that we are his servants. But actually, our hearts are secretly looking for how we can use Jesus to make ourselves look good. There is a danger real danger in being the person up front, like I'm doing now, doing Christian service that is noticeable 
to other people. It's a great danger for those who are on a platform in some way. We can start to do it for the wrong reasons, yet be blind to those reasons. But you know what? You can be just as proud in doing the hidden jobs at church. I remember with some embarrassment a number of years ago, uh, when I was uh, in my early 20s, uh, volunteering to do, set the chairs out for a, an important Christian event. Uh, it was a gathering of a number of churches. They had a guest, famous guest speaker coming and uh, I volunteered to do the chairs and I turned up and I, I worked really hard and I, to be honest, didn't do a brilliant job because I'm not very good at putting chairs out. But I worked really hard and I lifted these chairs and put them all there myself. And after the, I'd done it all, I went to the guy who was organising the event and I basically made him know that I'd really worked very hard. And he just looked at me with a twinkle in his eye and said, it's been noticed. <laughs> it's been noticed. The hidden job, but I wanted to be recognised. See, spiritual pride is a great problem for all of us. There are endless possibilities for self-deception. We can even be proud of being humble. And one thing we do know from the Bible is that every single man, woman and child in the world has a problem with pride. It's the root of sins. Yet the New Testament says we're called to have this mind or this attitude, the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited or grasped for his own advantage, but took the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men and women, and became obedient just like a servant to the death on the cross. He put your well-being ahead of his own, even unto death. And that then is to be our pattern. We're going to have to die many times if we're going to be like Jesus. The truly Christ-like person is known by the spontaneity and the ease with which he or she does those little, annoying, messy things which the slave would do. We need to learn this lesson, don't we, over and over again. This pattern I've given, he said, that you should do as I have done for you. Now, it's a good moment to pause, to reflect, to ask the Holy Spirit to point out in us where there are places we should be serving other people in Christ's body in ways that we're not. But I want to suggest one place that may not spring to mind, but is a pressing need in our contemporary culture. It's the place of outrage, social media, and what's called the cancel culture. And I'm going to quote from an article by Dr. Ed Stetzer. Stetzer reflects on the fact that a pastor in the United States uh, made a mistake. He, he liked a number of uh, messages or tweets on, on social media that were actually offensive to a number of other people. And this was brought to light very publicly. And as a result, his church was cancelled. It was kicked out of the build, the school that it was meeting in. And all the church's volunteers were banned from serving in the community where they'd been doing a lot of work for the poor. Now Stetzer writes about reflecting on this episode. I am where, while the pastor made a mistake, I am wary of the ways People have weaponized social media in response. 
use social media as a weapon. Even as Christians need to be angry at injustice and hate, social media can make us exceptionally bad stewards of our anger. This new practice is called the cancel culture. The cancel culture refers to the practice of withdrawing all support for those in the public eye after they say or do something considered offensive by a certain group. The cancel culture communicates this, out with you, because we are inclusive. See the pride in that? But a better way is to take the time to look at the larger picture of that person or of that organisation. Every single one of us has said or done something at some point in our lives that deserves conversation and perhaps we need to be confronted about it. And that is undeniable. But does every instance require public shaming? And in this case, the cutting of all ties that offered so much good to so many people. So Stetzer calls Christians to go countercultural in this way. While the rest of the world is leaning into division and tribalism, Christians now have an opportunity, a rare one, to learn from one another in ways that testify to the world about our shared identity in Christ. Scripture calls us to be people of the towel rather than people of the pitchfork. Jesus modelled this for us when he washed his disciples' feet without exception or expectation. Remember, he washed Judas's feet as well. This was not a simple object lesson but an example of perfect service that reflected Jesus' humility when he came to earth. Jesus then asked his disciples to imitate him in washing one another's feet. People of the towel, get this, that Jesus wants us to humbly and lovingly serve others in every human interaction. Perhaps there is no place that is more important in our day than in digital conversations. Where others seek to cancel, we are called to forgive and serve. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you have taught us that what we do for the least of our brothers and sisters, we do also for you. Lord, grant us the will to be the servant of others, just as you were the servant of all, when you gave up your life and died for us. Hear us and help us, Lord, we pray. Amen.